The Brutally Speaking podcast is proudly sponsored by Starving Artist Brewing. Starving Artist Brewing may be a small speck on Michigan's beer map, but they say big things come in small packages. A brewery who really puts their money where their mouth is, supporting underground artists far and wide. Making delicious beers with the simple belief that you should judge beer, not people. Brutally Speaking Podcast is proudly sponsored by Rockabilia.com. For over 30 years, Rockabilia has been the go-to destination for all things band merch. With over 500,000 items in their online store and collaborations with today's hottest bands, you're sure to find something you love. Use our code BREW10 at checkout and take 10% off your total order. So go pick up your favorite new piece of merch now over at rockabilia.com. Now, on to the show. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode. No, 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 no. Hold up. This isn't just another episode. This is fucking episode 400 of the podcast. Seven years in the making. I've done a lot of reflecting, as one does when you hit certain milestones, not only in your life, but in your creative endeavors. And this is one of those moments, you know, getting to have Vin Rock of fucking Naughty by Nature on the show and while it may seem like an anomaly guest because we don't dip into hip-hop that much, it's honestly one of those guests that when I got the email stating that it's 30 years of 1993, like, holy shit, 30 years! And remembering seeing the videos from this record on MTV growing up in the East Coast and just being like, there's something about this that's exciting and it's it's different from what I've been seeing on TV. And... The thing that still has always stuck out to me about Naughty by Nature is the branding. Like, I can think of those videos, and I can see everyone wearing different colored hoodies, different colored t-shirts, all with Naughty by Nature, that it kind of ushered in this this sense of, like, it's not a band, it's not a group. I wouldn't call it a gang from a negative aspect. I'd call it a community. A community of people who all share a common goal. And getting to... talk to Vinny about branding, music business, how it's changed and how you have to evolve over a 30-year career. You can't just luck into a 30-year career. You have to be paying attention to what you're doing. You have to stay on top of your game and you just have to be business-minded. And so who wouldn't want to talk to someone who has that kind of knowledge? Now, kind of segueing off of Vinny and Naughty by Nature, but kind of still speaking to the journey of a career. 30 years of one singular record is is amazing. It's a feat, you know, to, to still be here and still do it and have people give a shit about what you're doing. Here I am at episode 400, seven years later after I started this thing. I never knew where this was going to take me. I never knew the friendships that would end up happening as a result of me having a conversation with someone, 
I didn't even think half of the people I've talked to I'd ever get to talk to. And it still is a wild thing when I think back seven years, you know, we're approaching a decade of doing this. And I will definitely say, especially in the last few months, it has been a very trying time. I didn't even know if I was going to get here. I knew I was going to get to 400, but I didn't know what was going to happen beyond that. It's really been a struggle for me to find time to do the podcast. And I had said coming out of the, you know, the holidays this past year into the new year that I really wasn't going to just do shit for the sake of doing it and burning myself out, that I wanted to still have that passion of wanting to talk to people and connecting with people. That's what started the whole thing. And anything less than that was going to kind of be shortchanging my time, the other person's time, and ultimately you who listen to this. The podcast has revealed and taught me so much about myself and has changed my life in so many facets. I think one of the biggest things, and I know it's something I, I kind of beat to death on this podcast, but if it wasn't for doing this show and realizing how quickly I can just kind of go into customer service mode or radio voice mode or whatever, where I just throw on the mics and, hey, how is everyone doing today? Where I really was going through some real shit, that it was the impetus of why I went to therapy. Going to therapy then started finding its ways, the things I was learning about myself, the things I was being shown how to better communicate with people, the being real and honest with yourself and how it correlates to what you expect and want from other people trickled its way into the podcast. And it was one of those moments, the first episode I did after going to therapy with Lee from Born of Osiris, it was such a, a like light clicking on moment where I was like, shit, this was probably one of the best episodes I've done. And it's because I was able to put more of myself into the episode. I was able to put my walls down and my fears and insecurities and, and put myself out there to somebody who I've never met and I've never talked to. But in turn, it ended up allowing them to do the same with me. And it's one of those things where ever since then, that's what I've been after is having that real genuine connection with someone to not be afraid to put yourself out there. And it's one of those things where I'm sure at times it's maybe awkward or uncomfortable to hear these parts of the conversations, but I hope that eventually it doesn't become awkward. It doesn't, it's not weird. It's not cringe that I hope it becomes this thing that allows maybe you to listen to someone you're interested in, whoever the guest may be. Cause I am assuming most people aren't interested in me when they listen to the show and that's fine. I understand that I'm a conduit to a thing someone wants and it's a thing, though, where I realize that that's where the magic of all this is. That is really why podcasting as a format and a medium is so intriguing because you essentially get to hear two people have a real conversation and walk away feeling like you know that person on a more personal level. And sometimes, it, it as stupid as it is to say it like this, it gives you permission to maybe seek out therapy, to... Take the initiative to start your own thing, whatever that is. And I hope as I sit here, as I have been sitting here for seven years, staring at my computer, looking at the wave files going as I create nothing, and I'm literally just thinking in the moments of what I want to say, that I hope 
it inspires you in some capacity to start a new journey for yourself, a new creative endeavor, to start losing some weight, to better your life in some way, to do that thing that you always have wanted to do, but you've just been too afraid to do it for whatever reason. I hope that seeing this and seeing the quote-unquote successes of it, the longevity of it, gives you permission to do the same thing. This show was really born out of me getting upset at watching people interview people that I was really interested in and just pissing away the opportunity by asking dumb fucking questions. And sometimes when I get negative comments on my own episodes, I sometimes want to reply, do better. It's literally how I started this show. So if I can do it, anyone can fucking do it. And it's one of those things where this episode with Vin Rock of Naughty by Nature, it's, wow, it's it's still mind-boggling that I got to talk to him for an hour and got to ask questions I've always thought about since being a kid watching the music videos and looking up interviews with him over the years. And it's just one of those things where I don't ever want to lose that feeling of just, wow, I got to talk to someone. So, wow, this is really fucking cool that this happened. I think as I've been struggling with trying to find where the podcast fits in my life, I think that's the thing is I just need to let it happen. I need to let these things happen. But if I ever lose that sense of amazement and wonder and shock and awe when I get people and the conversations I get to have with people, I think that's when I'll know it's time to to pack it up and call it a day. But that day is not right now, so let's get into my conversation with Vin, and I'll talk to you all on the other side of it. I want to say, first of all, because uh, I am fully someone that believes in giving someone respect uh, where it's due. Um, I don't know if you saw the email I had sent your publicist uh, about getting you on this show. Um, I've been trying very hard over the six years of doing this show to try to incorporate more hip hop and rap, uh, something I've grown up with for a long time and a huge fan of. And I just kind of constantly get shot down for being the predominantly rock metal guy, whatever. And as I told the publicist, I get a lot of shit from people that listen to this show going, he talks about rap and pop and hip hop and all this shit. And I don't feel like he likes this genre either. So I feel like I'm kind of an island unto myself at times. And you are somebody that is highly respected from myself and in the game itself to where I just want to say thank you for taking the chance on me and doing this show because it's something I wanted to explore a lot more. And you are literally the first to come on and, and talk with me. So thank you. First and foremost. Right. Nice. That's cool. Great to be first. <clears throat> um, that being said, you know, 30 years of 1993. <sighs> Something that has always struck me, even from being a little kid watching MTV and like yo MTV raps growing up was the iconic branding that you all seem to have right out the gate. And it's something I feel like was largely and still sort of is largely missed the opportunity to be a brand and to, be almost like a lifestyle for lack of a better term. It's something that 
instantly stuck out to me. I mean, literally everyone in the videos had shirts, t-shirts, whatever, everything that could have the logo on it had the logo. And I feel like as I look back, that's just not something I feel like people were doing back then. Was that something that you collectively or you personally were like, we got to get our branding right and we got to get our merchandise game right out the gate. We want people to be a part of this thing and know that it's going to be the groundswell that's going to help us, you know, kind of succeed and get out of the underground. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, with branding and and back then or prior to our arrival, it wasn't necessarily merchandise. It was just that's the way hip hop was. You know, in the early days of hip hop, you always branded your crew. You know, so you always had the name of your crew on your baseball cap and, you know, you would have the airbrush T-shirts or airbrush hoodie to represent either your name or the name of your crew. And I guess back then when the big rock bands, those are the guys who had the merchandise. But on the streets, it was almost like a ghetto fabulous way of having merchandise. So once we surfaced, it was like, okay, bet. And then we had forefathers, Public Enemy, NWA. They were really good with their merchandise. So once we arrived, we were like, okay, bet. This is the way to do it. We looked up to them and we duplicated what they did on top of the fact we came up in hip hop with branding ourselves. Even before Naughty by Nature, we were a group called The New Style. So we always had New Style t-shirts, jackets, hats, all of that stuff. So we, we've always branded ourselves in that sense. And we always understood the importance of it because, hey, if you have a bunch of T-shirts and you give them out, you have a bunch of walking billboards um, around, especially in your hometown. It's just crazy to think of like, <clears throat> you know, going to a lot of rap shows. It's funny to see how little that area is paid attention to. Like you'll go to a show and maybe there's a T-shirt if and you're just like, you're leaving money on the Like, literally, you are leaving money on the table, like, by not doing that, like, not thinking either your guarantees are so fucking good that you can just be like, you know what? I ain't even, I'm not bringing the merch with me. I'm not shipping it. I ain't doing shit. And right. it's just like, I feel like it's such a missed opportunity. And like, really thinking back to like, and even Onyx for me too was like a big one that had a lot of like, name brand recognition of like the logo and so forth that it just was a thing to me like i just felt like you guys were so far ahead of the game on that where a lot of people i feel like were sort of kind of going after like brands like actually like being i don't want to say sponsored by a brand but like pushing someone else's label basically right it was just a thing where like i said it was just it's still from a business side of things like i'm just like god damn you guys were like so ahead of the game on that even though as you said and pointed out, like you were kind of piggybacking off of others that had done it, but it just feels like such well, a wasted I, I opportunity think, for artists today, to not do it. I think today what's happening is, you know, even back then, you know, MTV and you were on BET, you were on these big platforms. Uh, when we branded ourselves and we wore our T-shirts and our apparel, a lot of these corporations didn't like it. They considered it being, you know, giving you free advertisement. And it was a timing mm -hmm. point when they started blurring your T-shirts on your music videos. And then it became, oh, you know, notice to the labels. When you shoot these videos for these artists, you can't have 
their brand, you know, or their logos and their T-shirts in the videos because we have to play these videos and it's free advertising, you know? And I think what's happened these days is that the artists are compromised by corporations, you know? The corporations are in cahoots with the record labels and the marketing uh, uh, um, departments of these labels. And the focus isn't necessarily on branding the artists and and scaling the artist brand. It's like, oh, maybe it's a fashion brand, a Gucci or a Balenciaga or, you know, a Mary. And now you see all of these artists with these corporate brands on and they really never leave anything for themselves. So, you know, we're from the old school and we have a totally different uh, mentality about it. And it's unfortunate that some of these big stars, they're so huge. You look at them as a personality or as a performer, but you can't put a logo or a brand to some of these names, to most of these names now. It's interesting to think about, you know, and I talk about it quite a bit on the show of just, you know, when you start off becoming a musician or whatever, most everyone's goal is no further than just, I enjoy making music with my friends performing shows whatever and just kind of like the outlet and release it gives me but you don't end up when you start making it a career and a profession you then have to become like an accountant you have to be a tax person you have to do you have to do all these things in the game that like you didn't give a shit about and so it's always interesting to see those that i think take it seriously and want to be around and make it a career they take the time to learn all of these things so they can be more well-rounded and successful and I feel like that's obviously added to the longevity of your guys' career because I just don't think you can stick around if you don't take those things seriously because you're going to get fucked by somebody down the road eventually. Or, yeah, that, not, or at the very least, learning from that, that fucking. Well, and I think this is what any garage band needs to realize, that once you're in there, you're in the garage, you're in your bedroom, and you choose to strike up a band or or a personal career or a solo career, in essence, what you're doing is you're developing a startup, you know, and it's a startup business. So you have to pay attention that this is the music business and your product is your music, but you have to do business to support the product to make sure you're properly compensated for the product. And it's always been that way. If you're going to commercially release music, it's a freaking business. So you better learn something about marketing, accounting, legal, and, and protect your assets because your music is your asset and it's just a part of the game. So yeah. And a lot of times it's not fun, but <laughs> it's really not fun if you don't pay attention to it and then you go out there and have to chase it on the back end. So it's always better to be proactive instead of reactive. You know, with this being the 30th anniversary of the record, you know, so much has changed just in the musical landscape of the business, you know, going from, I mean, just even how music is consumed uh, to how it's released and, you know, all these different avenues to now put your music out that didn't exist back then without necessarily getting specifically into your finances on the thing, when you're putting out something like this and you're 30 years later, 
is it kind of interesting to kind of maybe have to restructure deals and so forth to account for new vernacular of like, okay, so royalty rates on a stream for this or having to go through legal loopholes from documents signed 30 years ago that it's just outdated verbiage and so forth. Is it, was it an interesting process just to kind of think about 30 years ago to now, like in conjunction to this release? Exactly. You know, um, and we handled a lot of that business during the pandemic. You know, it gave everyone a chance to do a deeper dive into their catalog, into their career and music business because everyone was blindsided by the pandemic. So everyone was forced to sit down and say, hold on, man, this is real and no one can go out and work. So it's all of that ancillary income. And you're like, hold on, let me make sure that my contracts are right. Let me find out where my catalog is and am I getting properly compensated, you know? So to me, it was a fun process because you uncover a can of worms and then you find out that a lot of these corporations are willfully ignorant when it comes to compensating you for your catalog. And to a lot of artists out here, I mean, it really is your responsibility to look after your product, look after your business. You can't have a retail store open up a deli or a sandwich shop and say, yeah, I invested in all of this inventory and all of that. But then you walk out of your store and leave your front door and back door open with no one there. You know, what do you think is going to happen to your store? So if you're going to take the time to invest in that inventory, put up a retail store, you better make sure that you understand the business and you pay attention to your business if you expect to stay around for a while. You know, it's it's interesting because like I did see I typically don't go to look at other interviews of that people are going to come on the show have done because then I'll just piggyback off of a question I feel like I could have expounded upon more that was left like hanging. But I did see something and it was and I quickly turned it off because I didn't want to hear the answer so I could act actually talk to you a little bit more about this but i see that you are someone that is like has businesses like outside of of the group that you seem to be someone that is business minded and i kind of want to know a little bit more about you know the process of becoming a business person for yourself and startups and all that kind of stuff how has that been and how has what you've been, what you've learned in the music industry, how have you traversed that into more, I will say more like actual brick and mortar stores and so forth or other businesses in general? Right. Well, in this industry, as I said, um, when we started, you know, we were savvy enough to create our own merchandise and we put emphasis on it so much so that the MTVs or the BETs began blurring our logos or what have you until we made enough noise where we pushed back. And for our group, we didn't have that problem. Uh, another thing that happened for us is that we had some of the big brands like an Adidas or I remember back in the day, Columbia uh, Sportswear or Columbia Outerwear. They wanted to do product placement with us, if you will. You know, mm -hmm. hey. Here's a gang of clothes to wear, free goods to wear. Hey, isn't that great? No, here's a bunch of free goods. Hey, would you mind doing a poster with us? And we'll put those up in Foot Locker. We're like, no, let's do a deal. Let's sit down and do a real deal. If you figure my band and my music is large enough to give us free goods and to do a poster to put in Foot Locker, how about we do a real deal together? Oh, no, we don't do that. We only do that for athletes and this, that and the other. So 
it really pissed us off. And we were like, you know what? Screw all of them. We're going to invest in ourselves. So our first, you know, my first real venture was our brick and mortar naughty gear store. So we were like, man, these guys aren't going to pimp us out and treat us anyway. We'll invest in ourselves. So that's what we did. You know, we invested in ourselves. And then back then I realized that the internet was coming along. So when you have worldwideweb.naughtybynature.com, the www's dot naughty by nature.com www stood for worldwide web so i'm scratching my head I'm like you know what this is an international tv station that you can go direct to your international audience and whatever you're selling whatever you're promoting it's a direct to consumer relationship so i remember opening up or investing in my first website. That was around 1996. We put up the store in 94 and then 96, we had our first website and prior to social media, you know, we had a message board up there. So when you went to naughtybynature.com or naughtygear.com, there was a message board and that's how we communicated with the fans. And I remember having the naughty gear website, naughtygear.com, uh, People weren't using their credit card over the um, internet yet, but we had an order form up there. So you could literally print out the order form, fill it out, put in a check or money order, and then mail it to our physical store. We would take the mail, see the order, fulfill the order, and ship back out. So then, you know, social media came along and the internet evolved, and we were like, okay. We get this. And this business model, direct the consumer and using the Internet would be, you know, far more efficient. You know what I mean? And then when the brands come along, you're going to respect us at a certain level. And if not, mm. we'll continue to do what we do. So and it helped us with our licensing deals, you know, because we're running up numbers and we're showing you the numbers we're doing direct the consumer. So if you plan on being in business with us, you need to match and scale what we're doing or else it doesn't make sense. We can keep it in house. You know, so with that being said, that gave us the foundation to continue to really understand that, wow, you can do it yourself. And since hip hop wasn't getting as much respect, once we began doing it ourselves, those walls began coming down. And a lot of these corporations like we can't play that game. We have to step up and do real business with with these artists. I think sometimes, like, you know, hearing a story like that, I mean, it just traverses anything. It's it's not just specific to, biz, like, business. It's not specific to sports or music or anything like that. It's just the want and the, the, the desire to be successful and, and not taking no for an answer. And, you know, it's interesting to think back to the era of, like, as you were talking about, like, you couldn't even put your credit card online. I was like, I remember that. And <laughs> it's just... It's just interesting to think about how different shit was back then, but to also think about how it didn't deter you. Like so many people would have been like, oh, well, if I can't get the money real quickly and it's kind of a long form process to, to get paid and, and to keep this thing going, I don't really know that I want to do that because I'm already doing something that requires a lot of effort and energy. So to kind of diversify and go into something else, knowing that it's not a short play, but more of a long play down the road that I feel like that just, again, kind of speaks to the business mind of, of you and seeing kind of the writing on the wall and just looking at every opportunity to grow your own brand and yourself. And honestly, like, you know, in, in light of now all the 
L deals and stuff going on in sports and, and all the athletes kind of being having been taken advantage of for so long. Yeah. It's it's interesting as you were kind of talking about that, like licensing deals. And it's like, I'm sure people probably tried to lowball you and stuff like that a ton. And then you're like, here are our numbers either like you need to, this is what you need to like match or exceed for us to even want to do anything with you. Cause it just makes no business sense for us to do anything with you. Exactly. I mean, and I think, you know, with, with those corporations, it's really predatory. And that's what's happening right now in the business. Like they're coming to the artists. Oh, here's a 360 deal. Take it or leave it. You know, and some artists feel they have no choice. But if you're coming to the table and you grind out hard enough, by the time you're an independent artist and these labels want to be in business with you, you should walk in with data in hand, which gives you a better, you know, better leverage at the bargaining table. So you shouldn't let them just say, oh, take it and leave it, because the reality is they need you more than you need them at that point, the way the game is going right now, because there's not much artist development, you know, going on these days. They're just scouring the Internet, seeing who's viral, seeing who has momentum, and then they're going to grab them up. So you definitely shouldn't fall for that game in all terms on their way or the highway. Well, it's interesting, like something I've been talking about for a while uh, on the show and just kind of with friends So a big sticking point is always when you tour is paying venues merch cuts and you can go a handful of different ways with it. I think pretty much the consensus is that from the artist perspective, I'm here. You wouldn't have a crowd without me. Why are you taking more money from me when you're not giving me a cut of your bar sales and so on and so forth? And the interesting thing is, is I had made a comment to somebody in a band that I was like, why isn't the conversation If you're bidding as a talent buyer across all wherever you're looking to tour, people are bidding on you to put in a show so you'll come to them. Why isn't it being renegotiated in contracts where it'll either be, hey, we'll take less of a guarantee and essentially you take no merch and then that's kind of our back end deal on the on the on the show. Why isn't that kind of becoming the narrative you want to do? And all I got back was, well, it's just the way it's been done. And that's way more of a conversation than most people can get into. And it's like, but at the end of the day, if you are the person who's bringing the value to a show and to the venue, why are you letting them fuck with your money like that? Like figure out something else. And very recently, a friend of mine's on the JID tour right now, uh, tournament, uh, doing merch management for him. Uh, and it's funny because he was saying before the tour started, he was like, this whole tour sold out. They're playing like live nation venues, like across everywhere. And there's no merch cut. And he goes, it can be done. You just have to fucking put it out there and kind of work on new deals and, and kind of maybe rocking the boat, but it happened. And it's one of those where like, I see that and I'm like, Okay, so it can be done. So now the argument is null and void of, well, it's harder. And it's like, no, I think that's the key word. It's harder. And your manager or your whomever is dealing with this doesn't want to fucking do it because it affects maybe some money that they're making. And at the end of the day, it's like everyone seems to be looking to put their hand in an artist's pocket at any chance they can. And I just have always been kind of shocked that it's like everyone just has this mentality of that's just the way it is. And it's like, fuck that. Right, right. And, you know, even what we're doing, um, KG and I, with our new project, we have a project, Ill Town Sluggers, you know, not to jump ahead, but what we're doing is we're renting out venues and we're controlling the whole venue. We're controlling the house. So when it comes to the merchandise, 
we keep that cut, you know, we keep that cut and we're be, we're able to cut. We'll, we'll cut a deal with the house for giving us access to the venue, but we keep a larger cut of the merch. And then my other play is that since I do run my own online shop, I encourage the fans to buy prior to the show, you know, because sometimes fans, you know, they get wild, they get drunk. Who wants to carry around a bunch of merch all the time and or buy that expensive T-shirt or, or merch item at the venue and actually lose it? You know what I mean? Somewhere down the line between a point of purchase, partying at night and actually getting that merch item in your house. You know what I'm saying? So to me, my strategy is, hey, the show is going up. The tour is going up. I encourage you to buy from us directly prior to getting to the concert. And as a matter of fact, walk in with the merchandise on. You know what I mean? And uh, that 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 helps a lot as well. So yeah, we're being very creative on that side with with the merch. I love it. I think it's a great idea. I mean, you're seeing it already with a lot of the VIP packages and upgrades that people are doing. Where one of the incentives I feel like a lot of people are enjoying is early access to the merch booth, like where it's like, you can get all your stuff, get it signed, whatever. And then you can go back to your car, put it on whatever. And then now that's one less thing you have to deal with. And it's funny because I always, when the VIP things first started coming out and that was a perk, I was like, that's not really a perk. Like, I mean, you're making, it's not like I'm getting a free shirt for all the money I'm spending on this. But then it became a thing where I saw so many people like, and when I've run into instances where I'm like, hey, do you have that? And, you know, whatever. No, nah, we're out of that already. And it's like, shit, I guess it would have been kind of advantageous to come in here early, pay a little extra and get what I wanted first dibs. Exactly. And 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 even if, right, if you don't have early access, by the time you go to the merch line and the line is backed up, you're like, I don't want to deal with this. I'll, I'll go grab a beer before I grab the merch. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You know, something I kind of wanted to talk about, too, that kind of stood out to me, and it's it's the fun thing for me. Like, I feel like I'm at this point in my age where I'm starting to sound more like my dad, where, you know, I listen to what I listen to. Sometimes when I hear something new, it just reminds me of something else that I've already heard. And I go, well, I'd rather go listen to that thing than hear someone kind of doing a bad take or not as good as what I enjoy from the other person. And listening back to this record, you know, something that stood out to me right away was just the fact that you, you know, obviously giving uh, KG like his his props on the first fucking song, you know, calling him the super producer. And it's a term we know now so, so well. But I mean, even kind of thinking back to, to the early 90s, it's like out of like, I mean, obviously DJ Premier is a, you know, um, I'm thinking... Shit, Dre was the guy for up. Yeah, Dre, Moby. Um, you know, there's there's a handful, obviously, from the early 90s. But it was one of the first times I can think of where, like, literally heard the term. Like, now it just seems like, I mean, DJ Khaled is a super producer and is a celebrity in his own right where people probably think if they don't know him, think he's a rapper. But he's just become the ultimate super producer of sorts. And it's just interesting that even back then, you know, you guys giving credit to your producer and calling, you know, the him a super producer and kind of the era of them first coming out and kind of being their own form of celebrity, for lack of a better term, you know. I feel like that showcases a lot more of like how tight, like the groups used to be. It was kind of like everyone from the producer to the artist, you know, the rappers, MCs, whatever, everyone was in it together. And I don't feel like I see that nearly as much anymore. It's just that like, we're a family, our producers, family, we're family. Like we're going to put them on too. Right. And I think that came from 
even prior to the evolution of the hip hop producer, it was the hip hop DJ. So if you look at Run DMC and Jam Master J, you know, they always bigged up Jam Master J as the DJ, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. It was always about the DJ and the DJ controlled the music. But then as we got into sampling and, and producing, the DJ became the, the producer. The DJ evolved into the producer. So even just like a Jermaine Dupri, he started as a DJ and evolved into a producer. And I saw him the other day. He's on his live DJing and, you know, that's the foundation. So when we bigged up our DJs, then it was just organic. We would big them up as producers, as most of them evolved into producers. So, yeah, that that's how it happened. And then I guess, you know, you had a DJ in a group. But then once the producer thing started, like a Pete Rock, they kind of extracted and evolved out of being in groups. And now they're mm -hmm. just a producer. And now a producer tends to just service the entire industry as opposed to being in a group. So right. that I wouldn't necessarily put on the groups. I would put that on the producer's ego, so to say, you know, <laughs> because it's either today you have an artist that's to start a show. They have a DJ, a tour DJ, but the DJ isn't part of the group. But it's all about the frontline artist, and the DJ is just an employee now that's buried in the back, right. and you never even recognize him or or big him up. So that's the way the game is now. I think it's interesting too because, like, you look at some of the people. Like for me, you know, Timbaland being a really big one, um, and kind of even for Elm the Neptunes and stuff like that. Like a lot of the stuff they were doing, where they would kind of singularly, as a producer, work with an artist and really bring out a lot of their best. Like I think it's it's fun to kind of see people going through that. And I mean, obviously Dre and Eminem and and a lot of other people. It's like there becomes just this symbiotic relationship where it's like, you kind of speak each other's language. You know what the other person's going to like, you know how to bring the best out of that person. And I feel like that's kind of always the fun when like the producers kind of re get back into the fold with their friends and so forth and just create, you know, magic that only those people can create. Like, yeah, like chemistry can be found with other people when you're on the road, but there's something to be said about the people who are like in there with you during the creation and, and the form like foundation of like, songs and songwriting to me that I think really showcases just why a lot of these things are crazy. I mean, Dilla is a big one for me and especially being here in Michigan. And it's one of those things like just watching that dude quest love is now essentially like the next iteration of that with his just musical knowledge, but just the way like to see him, like you see like footage of him working on something and he'll just be like, Oh, oh, oh wait, 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 I have an idea for a beat. Hold on. Let me go find this record real quick. Like, to know music that that well to then be able to pull out classic material for your artist, give them that basically you're kind of pulling that secret formula out just for them. And well, I feel and like that's, that's, that's something way, that is just so crazy. Right. And that's the way KG likes to work, you know, um, for him being our in-house producer as naughty by nature, that's all he loves to do. So when he went on to produce next and Jane and Jaheem, although they were in the R and B realm, that's what Kate felt most comfortable with. You know, that's mm -hmm. the way Kate likes to work. Even a lot of our friends and family are like, Hey, why don't you produce for Beyonce or Rihanna or whomever, or, you know, this rapper or that one. Kate's like, I, 
I don't get a kick out of that. I love finding raw talent. I love collaborating with raw talent and I love working with them to develop their unique sound and style. And that's the kind of producer K is. And it's really artist development. And that's how you get a solid foundation for an artist so they can have a career. And that is part of what's lacking today. You know, if an artist gets signed, it's like, oh, just go grab any producer and name grab. You know, it's really clout chasing, slap it together and say, oh, here's an album that has three or four or five hot producers on it, but it's just a track. You know, email us some tracks. Oh, you like that? All right, good. Record over this, record over that. It's not really sit down sessions. You know, you're just emailing stuff back and forth, emailing me the lyrics, email me the beat. And that's not real artist development. It's not nurturing an artist. And, you know, again, it's the cash grab business, which we all see a lot of this music is disposable. And there's no real classics that you can say, damn, this record will be valid 10, 15, 20 years from now. You know, you can listen to the playlist of just 2017 and be like, man, I forgot all about that record. You know, (laughs) it's crazy. I mean, it's it's kind of interesting because I feel like when thinking about different records and so forth. Like I've had this, this thought I've tried to work through and have conversations with people and and try to figure out if there is a a quote unquote reason or an answer for this, or if it's just, I mean, it just is what it is. But you know, when you throw on like, you know, working in kitchens and stuff like that, or bars, it's like, you're, you're hearing all kinds of music, but I mean, inevitably it always comes back to the same stuff. Like it'll be, you'll hear journey. You'll hear Elton John. You'll hear, you know, you'll hear these different artists that are timeless and legendary regardless of genre, but we always go back. And I keep thinking, what is it that makes this music so timeless that regardless of when we're talking about it, since it's come out decades later, why are these songs still so popular and why do they work? And I, will there be another artist or will there be songs that can last that long. And really the only artist that I can kind of think of that I think will be multi-generational and even kind of cross over is really the Foo Fighters. But I think a lot of that was just because Dave's everywhere and he's kind of become the token rock guy sponsor for the, the genre. But outside of them, I just, I don't know. Like you just said, go back and listen to random playlists and hear all the, the one hit wonders essentially. And just kind of go, yeah, whatever the fuck happened to them. And I just don't know like why that is like, is there just something so inherently better about music from back then? Or is it more of the people just gave it shit? Well, I, I think it's more of the industry was much smaller, right? We had X amount of labels out there, but we, in that analog time, when you had to print physical product, you know, vinyl cassette CDs, Uh, the bottleneck was such tighter, you know, it was really centralized music industry and you only had X amount of players. You only had X amount of releases. And back then the corporations or the record labels really rammed this music down your throat. You know what I mean? Now, not saying it wasn't good. These were all great records, but it was very centralized, very controlled ecosystem. Fast forward to now in the digital age, so many more artists get to upload their music. They get to, you know, put up their music. And now, like Trev says, there's more artists than fans out there, you know? So there's a (laughs) lot of music, tons of music to consume, and they don't have that centralized grip 
on the on the industry anymore. So you don't get that concentration. And for the labels now, it's all about volume. So the more they can push out there, the better. And there's no real concentration on, hey, we really believe in this song. Let's sit on it and really, you know, market this record. They're just like, the more the merrier. And if it catches a little run or if it could catch a viral TikTok video, so be it on to the next. And it's really destroying the quality of music. And now it's really up to it. I think it's a gift and a curse because I'm really a passive music listener and I've never collected music or purchased music. But now in this age, I listen to Spotify and I just click certain music genres in there. And I do catch a lot of great music out there, you know, and it's really disrespectful for a veteran like me to say, oh, all of this new music sucks because I do come across a lot of great music and I tend to save it, save it, save it. I'm like, wow, there are some really good artists out there. It's just that they're so crowded and it's flooded that maybe a lot of these artists don't get the marketing attention they need. You know, it's almost like the outlets are infinite but still, you know, the venues or to get access to play live, it's still a finite game. So the gatekeepers are controlling the touring. The gatekeepers are controlling the festivals. They're controlling the B stages and the startup stages compared to all the real great talent that's out there. So, you know, it's a gift and a curse in that sense. I feel like you just kind of hit on something that's interesting is, that you know you talk about sort of things being gatekept and i almost wonder if more if part of it falls on on the artists themselves for thinking that just using the internet as the 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 vehicle to to be out there that you don't have to put in the work face to face and actually organically growing your fan base from live shows and doing those kind of things and helping the word of mouth that way i mean i feel like we've all seen people who you know or at least more on the business side of things where it's like, people are worried about what are their Spotify numbers? What are their Facebook numbers? And it's like, I mean, I've seen plenty of people who have great numbers and got like less than a hundred people at the show. And it's like, that don't mean nothing. If it like doesn't correlate into people actually showing up. And I feel like maybe that's a downfall too, is people just assume that if you're famous on the internet, that that then everything else will be easy. But it's like, you're forgetting the part about, it has to translate into the real world, which is, I think, a bigger talking point of people don't think about real world things anymore. Online is, quote unquote, the real world. And it's not. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's the sad part about young people. And to an extent, you can't blame them. But of course, you know, we're of a certain age group where we remember, hey, if you're a band, you have to go out here, man, and go club for club, bar for bar, and just bang out. And to me, that, and I was I was telling my friends about that um, as well. I'm like, well, listen, everyone thinks new music discovery is on the internet. Throw your stuff up on the internet. But really, there's thousands, hundreds of thousands of new songs out there. How do you connect with some kind of base when there's so much mess and noise out there. Mm. People are 
getting new music discovery happened in your bars and then your clubs and in all of your local venues. And, you know, you remember when you were in high school and college, you would go bar hop and just check out this new indie band. And that's when you had new music discovery. And that's what first attracted you to them because you heard the music live, you got the vibe from them live and you're like, yo, that was really cool. Then you began to follow them and then you began to follow and purchase their music. Right now they're doing it in the exact opposite. Well, I'm just going to put my stuff up online. I'm going to show out online. And you've never even performed five gigs in your life. You know what I mean? So who the hell is going to follow you just because you uploaded some random redundant, same as the last 10 videos I saw, who's going to buy into that, man? It's trash. Yeah. Yeah, that was one of my funniest experiences going to Magic City. Uh, one of the last times is there was just so much music I didn't know. And like to the point where like the DJ dropped the beat, everyone sing like the hook or whatever. And you're just like, the fuck song is this? And unfortunately, it, it's not an environment where you can just whip out your phone, Shazam some shit real quick. And it's so packed, you can't get to the DJ anyway. So it just becomes this thing where I was like, it's it's cool from a music fan's perspective to go to something like that and just know like i mean magic city obviously having broke like future and so many other artists that there are these ancillary things where it's still about the song it's still about the music it's still about the vibe when you're in a room sharing that experience with people and just having fun strippers up too um but it is one of those things where it's a uh, it's really fun to go into that environment and just kind of feel like this is what everyone hopefully will come and learn about in the next, like two, three, four, five years when someone, when some of these people potentially blow up beyond this little scene, but this is where it starts. And to me, I think that's just really cool to kind of go be a part of something like that. Yeah. Still yeah. Definitely. In this day and age. Um, something I want to kind of talk about, uh, cause I feel like it'd be, I'd be remiss if I didn't, you know, obviously with the Grammys being last night, uh, as when we're recording this, you guys won the first rap Grammy. And it's it's interesting to kind of think back to, you know, being the first to win something. And I famously, you know, the Grammys have gotten, you know, rock and metal wrong pretty much from the jump. You I mean, even giving Metallica, like screwing Metallica one year to have Jethro Tull win the best metal album. Um, and so it's it's kind of interesting to, to look back and think back to. You know, what was it like when, you know, you're finding out the Grammys are adding a rap category finally to then be nominated, let alone to win? What is kind of that journey like for you as an artist to kind of finally, I hate to say it like this, but I feel like it's probably maybe how it was, which is to be recognized as a, as a source of actual music and not just to be looked at as, you know, one of my favorite lines from uh, Andre 3000's verse in Humble Mumble. But, you know, it was... Uh, hip hop was only guns and alcohol. And it's like, oh, hell no. But yet it's that too. Right, right. Well, you know, our category was best um, rap album for a group, you know? So we won the best uh, rap album for a group. That was the first Grammy. So, hey, it was, it was definitely validating for us. Um, and even the year prior, you know, and sometimes they get it wrong because the year prior... We, right, the year prior, we were nominated, Hip Hop Parade was nominated, and we lost to Will Smith's Summertime. And then mm. in 1995, we put out Poverty's Paradise, and the single was Feel Me Flow. 
we won that year, but we won over uh, Bone Thugs and Harmony who had crossroads, you see? Right. So sometimes they're like a year behind and arguably Hip Hop Parade could have won over Will Smith Summertime and then Crossroads from Bone Thugs and Harmony. That was such a big song. Arguably it could have won over, you know, Fill Me Flow. So for us to definitely get recognized, it was it was dope. But back then they weren't even airing the category, you know? So I remember we went to the Grammys and prior to coming, they were like, oh, your category was up and you won. So, but you're not going to be on the <laughs> and you know, so when you arrive, you're going to run through the red carpet and congratulate yourself or tell them how great it is. But we basically were never invited to the ceremony or even sit in the auditorium. So I remember as we were passing through, we knew what the play was. I remember opening the door and stepping in and just yelling, <laughs> like, we won. <laughs> Closed the door and went to do press, you know. But back then, there was a lot of disrespect for hip hop as a credible music genre. And mm -hmm. a lot of people were boycotting. You see, tons of people boycotted. But hey, like the Beastie Boys said, you got to fight for your right to party. And I think over the years, and even last night, was a testament to the Grammys finally gets it. And they finally understand how important the you know, the, the music genre is hip hop music genre is and how important the culture is worldwide. So it's undeniable now and hip hop is having its moment. And I just caution everyone as well, like music evolves and you want it to evolve. So the hip hop we know now, as a matter of fact, the current modern day hip hop far different than when, what we put out, what Tribe Called Quest put out, what, Run DMC put out and even Grandmaster Flash. So these things happen in decades. They happen in, you know, different eras and it evolves. So pay attention because, hey, there'll be a new uh, music genre coming pretty soon, you know, so you can't can't be mad. It was funny. There was my wife and I have just differing eras of love of rap for a lot of that special last or that that 50th anniversary special uh sequence that they did it was a lot of who's that who's that and i was like and i remember like when too short popped up i was like holy shit too short on a fucking grammy like wow and she's like i don't know who that is but then uh little uzi vert came out and i was like who's this <laughs> and she's like so oh uzi vert. and i was like God. really so it was like one of those things where it's like I'm tripping out over everybody that like I saw and grew up with. And then when the newer people were coming out, I'm like, who's that? Right, right. <laughs> and it just was so she interesting to, to kind of see. Later, right. She probably picked up on hip hop well, probably thousands, mid 2000s when she started listening. So for the longest time, I could not pinpoint why my wife and I have just like we're just literally the same age, like a few months apart. 38 i'm gonna be 30 we'll be 39 this year but it was one of those things where it's like how are how are you just not dialed into like this like 20 some odd years of hip-hop like where were you <laughs> and we were watching the straight out of compton movie and when the rodney king beating scene was coming up i was like um and she was like this happened and i go don't you remember this like all over mtv like all over everything she goes we didn't have cable and i go 
there it is. That is right. why you don't have this knowledge of like, and you know, I grew up originally from Delaware. So like being so close to Philly and a lot of the East coast States and, and having friends that had brothers and family bringing music to us, it was this thing where be like perfect storm of just right place, right time for a lot of these things. And so for her, like not having any of it living here in the Midwest with no internet and not really having any cable TV or whatever, it was like the, like the aha moment for me where I was like, Oh, that's why you just don't get any of this and don't have any of these references like I do. And that she, was she kind was of the, the same thing. Bubble. Yeah. She was in an yeah. analog bubble. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was really interesting to, to kind of really figure that out watching the NWA movie and just kind of be like, Oh, that's why we don't have a lot of the same references to, to this style of music. Um, you know, I kind of wanted to, to as well, you know, I've been hearing rumblings that a, a new record is on the horizon and that working on a 30th, 30th anniversary documentary and some other projects that are coming down the pipeline. What's kind of in store for, for you all moving forward uh, into 2023? Well, Naughty is on a hiatus right now. You know what I mean? As far as touring, as far as recording, but right now with KG and I were working closely with Tommy boy records to definitely celebrate this 30th anniversary of the 1993 album and the hip hop parade project and just all of our legacy catalog in general. But Kay and I have a new project we're doing called Ill Town Sluggers. It's the two of us and our DJ mascot and producer, uh, DJ Slugger. So it's a record label, it's artist development, but it is more of a platform, you know, to scale up to what's happening right now. It's really more of a in general platform, right? So with that being said, we do have artists we're developing, but right now um, we're about to push out a new project with uh, called Next by Nature. So Next is a veteran R&B group KG produced in the late 90s, 2000s. Mm -hmm. So we're combining both brands, Next by Nature. I'm rapping on all of the songs and we have Next, you know, singing on the song. So it's a hip hop and R&B play there. So we're about to release the single. And like I said, us under the Slugger Music um, label and brand, we're doing the Slugger Music concert series. So we have the Wellmont Theater here in Montclair, New Jersey. And, um, you know, we have uh, Next, we have A. Marie, we have um, classic rapper AZ, you know, Nas's protege with Funkmaster mm -hmm. Flex. And what we're doing is we're running out the venue, we're creating the stage and the platform. And now with what we're doing with Slugger, we're producing a show with veteran artists. So you have Next, you have A. Marie, and then you have AZ. But prior to that show, we have the Slugger DJ hype set and the music set where we could put on our new indie emerging Slugger music and Slugger affiliated artists. So now we're giving these emerging artists a stage and a platform to perform before the veteran artists go on, you know what I mean? And again, with this new music, the audience will see these artists performing this new music for the first time. And that's where we care. We come from the old school. We care about that kind of music discovery and new music discovery. They're performers, they're entertainers, they get to show their stuff. And then you get to fall in love with a live performer with live music. And then with that being said, our eventual goal is to scale it to the Slugger Music Festival. So we plan on, you know, 
uh, dabbling into different music genres, partnering up with DJs and producers who are specialists in those genres. And now, again, to play the game and, and to evolve with the modern uh, game, it's not just a record label and artist management company. It's more of a platform. And as we get into Web3 and the digital game, you know, we can help these artists in that space and just carry this slug of branding you know, moving forward and 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 still preserve the music that we like. Another thing, I see the guitar back there. You know, I tell KG all the time, I miss the live instrumentation. You know, I miss live bands, and you know, we really need to get back to that. And and shit, I miss a lot of the rock music out there. You know what I mean? And hip hop, definitely, I'm a hip hop head, but you know, you kind of miss that, and that's why you love bands like The Roots because they still have the live instrumentation there and you mix it up. And as well, our young people, they definitely need to learn to play live music, you know, and live instruments. And that will help preserve the integrity and the quality of music as well. 100%. I think, I think the cosign is something that is largely kind of missed out on now in the touring space and just kind of music in general. I feel like people are afraid to, to co-sign somebody else because I, I feel like maybe the industry has just pitted everyone against themselves. So everyone's like, well, I don't want to put the shine on somebody else because it could fuck up my money or do something. And I don't know, like, so it just, I feel like that went away. Like you don't see, I mean, in the day and age of like the thank yous, like, you know, you would learn so much about new artists and so forth in the thank yous in the, in the liner notes. And I feel like that's just such a lost thing now to, to people and especially in digital where you can't obviously have a digital thank you list, but it's uh, something I think about all the time is just, you know, how things of how you learn and grow beyond what the scope of knowledge you have is by little things like that. People dropping things like, oh, thank you to so-and-so or this wouldn't have happened without these people. And then well, who are those people then? And then you just kind of go on this journey. And I feel like that's uh, something that's missed out by a lot of people that are in this digital age now because it's just a matter of who is this? Tell me. And then that's as far as it goes. Right. And, you know, I, I and I tell KG this all the time. I'm like, well, you know, I look at it as the same way YouTube and all of the DSPs, Spotify, Apple Music, they're a platform and they have everyone uploading their content to their platform. So I'm like, hey, this is the way I feel about what we're doing, because with the DSPs, there's so much noise out there. People get lost in the sauce. But then old school music discovery was in a live venue and live performances. So with that being said, Kay, we don't necessarily need to sign every artist. The artists we like, the artists we want to develop, yeah, we could sign and do business with. But today, artists are basic whores, you know, and they'll whore themselves out. They'll sign to you, get on, get hot, and they're ready to leave and fight and that we don't need to do that. What we're going to do, we're going to create a platform and now bring me your tired, your hungry, your weak. And if you <laughs> are good enough, you could play on our platform. But our platform is going to be so hot that you'll be begging us to get on our platform or to get exposure on our platform, as opposed to us chasing you and saying, hey, you need to sign with us, blah, blah, blah. So it's really that reverse mentality and, you know, advantages us at the end of the day, because when we get right. to the festival, you know, uh, uh, level of what we're doing, hey, we don't have to ask anyone for anything. They'll basically be beating us down, begging us to come and play <laughs> on our platform. 
Absolutely. I uh, want to be mindful of your time again, as we were saying kind of in the beginning, but uh, where can everyone find you or anything you would like to plug online? Um, for one, everyone go to NaughtyByNature.com. That's our main website. And then you can find all of our socials there. But on Instagram, it's at NaughtyByNature, the number four ever. Uh, personally, I'm at Uncle Vin Rock on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, uh, and oh, yeah, Twitter is at NaughtyByNature as well. And then our entire ecosystem is Illtown Sluggers with a Z dot uh, com and all through the socials, but we'll be making enough noise that you would definitely find us very soon. Watch what we do. Awesome. It was really great chatting with you. Thank you so much for coming on the show and looking forward to at least another 10, 15, 20 years of, of Naughty Bar Nature stuff and, and everything moving forward. Absolutely. We'll, we'll be here. It's still fun and it's still fun to bang out and be creative with all of these new, um, New people out here, new artists, the new music industry. It's fun to stir it up. I like it. (laughs) Enjoy the rest of your day. All right. You too, buddy. So that was my conversation with Vin Rock of Naughty by Nature. Still just kind of sitting here with a smile on my face that I'm still in disbelief that this happened. Um, You know, Naughty by Nature, hip hop as a whole, especially this era of hip hop. Um, It's really kind of the birth of where my love of the genre started. You know, I know a lot of times when talking to different people and being a guest on other shows, and if you watch the video versions of these, a lot of times you'll see me wearing, you know, different rap shirts that I have, you know, like my Bone Thugs and Harmony t-shirt or my iced tea or whatever. And I'm even reminded actually of of a conversation I had at work the other day with one of my employees where I had come in on my day off and I was listening to music and I taken my headphones out and I set my phone down and I guess I somehow I hit you know the play button of what I was listening to which was actually some uh ice cube and it was a thing where I was like oh shit let me turn that off and was a thing where my coworker was like oh uh, what other kind of hip hop are you into? What, who else do you like? Like, what are your favorites? I was like, man, it's so weird. Like I like a lot of different stuff, but if I have to like go to kind of my sweet spot, it's usually going to be kind of what I started growing up listening to. So it's going to be a lot of, you know, the naughty by nature's the fucking Eric B and Rakim's. It's going to be some KRS one. It's going to be, you know, DMX. It's going to be naughty by nature. It's going to be like, there's just so much different shit. De La Soul. Like, I was so elated when De La Soul's catalog was finally available on the DSPs. Like day one, I went and started, I downloaded them back to my phone. And then basically like for a week straight, I just listened to those records because it had been so long since I've been able to just have them and listen to them when I wanted to. Sure, they were on YouTube, but it's like, it's not the same as like just having it on your phone and being able to listen to it in the quality it's supposed to be. And it's one of those things where, you know, I'm a product of my age and my environment. You know, I'm, I feel very lucky that I grew up in a household where my parents, you know, had MTV on as basically a background to everything we were doing, a soundtrack, for lack of a better term. So at different parts of my day, I'd be listening to anything from, you know, the early 90s alternative of Smashing Pumpkins and, uh, you know, like the Toadies and some other shit that, like, I'm kind of blanking on right now to, to come up with names. Uh, Nirvana, obviously, Soundgarden. 
and hearing, you know, Yo MTV raps, hearing all these different groups, Public Enemy. I remember being very intrigued and excited about the Public Enemy Anthrax, Bring the Noise cover, and just, wow, how mind-blowing is this that rap and metal are together and, you know, preaching the words of Chuck D. And just, it's it's so crazy to look back on that time and just realize how lucky I was to just be so inundated with so much music and different types of music and that I wasn't really sheltered from any of it. As I got older and obviously there became more profanity in music and different lyrical concepts and so forth talked about that maybe weren't as readily available at the time, uh, kind of thinking of like Marilyn Manson, for example. And, you know, my parents wouldn't let me listen to those. Um, However, I did find ways to listen to it because that's what we do when we're young. We seek out things that are exciting and dangerous and new. And that's what hip hop kind of was for me. It was that new and exciting and sort of dangerous thing because people were talking about their experiences that were different from my own, seeing the different things happening on the news You know, there was a big disconnect, and I think I even talked about it in this episode, where there's always been this disconnect between my wife and I with the different eras of music we listen to as a whole. Really specifically, though, the eras of hip-hop. And it was this thing where we were watching Straight Outta Compton, and they were showing the Rodney King beatings, and I was, my wife just didn't remember that. She was like, this happened? This was real? And I go, you don't remember this? Like, this was all over MTV. This, I mean, it was all over the news, but, like, it was heavily featured on MTV because artists like NWA were like, this is the shit we've been talking about. These are the things that we have gone through. And then it was such a light bulb moment for me that was like, oh, there's the disconnect between my wife and I from a musical background. And now we're kind of sharing in this thing where she's learning about it kind of firsthand and I'm kind of reliving these moments of my youth. And to just kind of think about how important music has always been in my life, how important it is in both of my myself and my wife's life, our life together is so focused around music and these shared experiences and pushing ourselves out of our comfort zones at times and in our travel and our experiences and doing things. And it's one of those things to me where music is always a part of it. Vin, Naughty by Nature, have been a huge part of my upbringing. And it's wild to say that. Um, It's wild to have talked to him. It's wild to have gotten business sense from him, from the man himself, literally asking him questions about branding and marketing. I mean, these are things that I kind of have to do with this. And to know that 30 years into his career, 30 plus years actually into his career, he's still kind of starting something and excited to start something new. And that obviously is next by nature, as you heard him say at the end of our conversation, but uh, they've dropped a new single about two weeks ago as on when I'm recording this. And it's, it's fun. You can tell it's a passion project. It's something that they enjoy doing all members of the group. And at the end of the day, You got to do it for yourself. If nothing else, you got to do it for yourself because Lord knows there's so many obstacles, so many other things we could be spending our time doing and so many detractors and people who will tell you that something sucks. Um, So at the end of the day, you got to do it because of you. And it's great to see these guys still going out and doing it and doing it at a high level. Um, I'm excited to see more of what's coming out from the project. I'm excited to see possibly uh, if there's going to ever be some new naughty music. 
Um, Tretch right now is out uh, doing uh, the new Jack City uh, play, which sounds incredible. That was a movie that I watched a shitload of when I was a kid. Probably shouldn't have, but uh, a movie that I remember my dad watching a ton. And it's just, again, there's there's so many things kind of hitting nostalgia factors for me. Um, not only with this episode, but the guest itself and just everything surrounding this episode. Um, I know it's a long episode. I know I blab for like almost eight minutes. How can you not, though, on a milestone episode? So if you're still listening, thanks for sticking around. Um, this is something that I've been long looking forward to putting out. Uh, it's really hard sometimes when you have a good episode or you know you got something that you're excited to put out and you got to sit on it for a while. Um, but, you know, that's that's what makes this fun. That's what makes the journey fun is is kind of getting to relive these these awesome moments. Um, so to start wrapping everything up, uh, if you would like to keep up with Naughty by Nature, it's simple enough. You could just go to NaughtyByNature.com. They got some awesome merch. I actually want to pick up the Day Glow t-shirt uh, that they have on there or the camo t-shirt. Um, I already still have my black on yellow hoodie, so I'm good on that. Uh, if you would like to keep up with Naughty by Nature on all the socials, it is Naughty by Nature on Facebook and Twitter. And Instagram is Naughty by Nature forever. That's the number four ever. And if you like keep up with Vin Rock, you can find him on Instagram at Uncle Vin Rock. He also has a Twitter under the same name. Doesn't look like it's been used since 2013. So uh, unless he has another account I couldn't find, it uh, doesn't seem like he is active on Twitter at all. Uh, for the podcast, if you would like keep up with us, it's simple enough. Bruce Speak Pod on all your socials. Uh, you can email me at brutallyspeaking at gmail.com. And if you would like to support our sponsors uh, for supporting us over the years, head on over to Rockabilia. Use our code BREW10 at checkout and take 10% off your total order. And Starving Artist Brewing, uh, who remind you to judge beer and not people, uh, a sentiment I think that you can apply to a lot of facets in your own life. And uh, just great people over there. So if you are in the Michigan area and able to go see them, go check them out. Go check out some of their beer uh, or just throw them a like on social media. Um, you know, the littlest things help so much. Uh, and for the podcast, I am John. And I'll talk to you all next time where, and you know, I haven't figured out which one of the episodes I've done that'll be next. So stay tuned and I'll see you next time.